0: This is the Books Podcast, presented by Tim Hague.
1: Ben Aronovich has made a bit of a splash with the Peter Grant series. That's now five full novels, and now a novella called The Furthest Station. Now, to be honest, I'm a little bit late to the party. I, a friend pressed the first one, Rivers of London, into my hand uh, about three months ago and said, you'll like this. And and I did. So I borrowed some more from him. Um, and um <laughs> liked them too. Ben Thank you for talking to it. What are you
2: eating? Um, I've been, I've just been handed a cake with like, <laughs> a further station cake with a with the logo on top. So it was too irresistible. I had to have some. Sorry.
1: We'll work around.
2: We it. will work. I will work my way through them. I'll try and do them in the gaps.
1: So if you just keep talking, sometimes that will be fine. Well, Peter Grant is a copper who encounters something supernatural on about page two. I do like the way you sort of hit the ground running there.
0: There had been reports suggesting there was a ghost on the Metropolitan Line, which Jaggett brought to me because disruptive phantasmagoria is the responsibility of the Special Assessment Unit, otherwise known as the folly, otherwise known as those weird bleeders. Since, despite being an operational command unit, the SAU consisted of me and Detective Chief Inspector Nightingale. And since inspectors don't get out of bed for anything less than a body in the vicarage most initial case assessments were done by yours, truly.
1: So, this uh, special assessment unit, also known as the folly, also known as those weird bleeders. Um, let's start with them. What's their brief? T- tell us about these people so we can get into what the books are about.
2: Uh, well, basically, um, it's, well, that's it's quite hard. It's, uh, I always have trouble with this because my, my, in my brain, it's the Harry Potter joined the Sweeney, it's, and, and and this only applies. Only half the people understand half the, half the the, the reference. Um, basically they're policemen that do magic originally the the title for the whole series was magic cops before i came up with a good title and it's basically policemen that do magic who deal with magic and who do the kind of supernatural crime so if it's a crime done with magic then it's done by uh, a member of the folly and i just thought well what would this be like what would these people actually be like if they were coppers and they did magic and and uh, i wanted to do something i like police procedurals i like ranking and all that kind of you know morse and everyone so I wanted to do something that would be like that so uh, but with magic so basically I just sat down and thought what would it be like and that's how it came but the reason why uh, it starts in the in the first like three pages we get straight into the supernatural is because I got fed up with lots of books where you spent two thirds of the book with a person going no no magic isn't real I thought well, let's just get or, or,
1: or that that scene in every uh, sort of hammer horror film in which they have to go surely you're not suggesting ah yes the supernatural is very real sir and that that you didn't want to do that scene hard no no you. well I,
2: I thought it'd be quite fun if you have him like because he's an empiricist I mean one of the things about Peter Grant is that he's an empiricist so he met a ghost so he doesn't sit there going, I can't have met a ghost. He doesn't doubt the evidence of his own senses because he's an empiricist. And and then he comes along and he has a superior officer just goes, yeah, magic's real. And fine. And I thought that would make a nice change from that kind of like long period of refusing to unbelieve I did really enjoy true. the
1: way you hit the ground running there. I we mean, have to start with Peter Grant, which is a very ordinary it's a very pedestrian name. I mean, you, you didn't think Cormoran Strike or something. you'd. Uh, no,
2: I went deliberately. It's, it's the Harry Palmer. I went deliberately for for the most... Kind of like mundane name I could think of.
1: So, what's his background? He's he's mixed race, and and te- tell us about. Um, we're going to well, go his, through his some of the
2: His dad characters. is his dad is an East End jazz musician, one of those classic kind of like given a corner at the age of fourteen, goes off talented, you know, fifties, sixties, Ronnie Scotts, all that kind of stuff. His mum's from Sierra Leone, uh, another classic kind of like came over in the in the I can't remember the seventies or the eighties. Meets the dad. She's a jazz groupie. So she meets the jazz and marries the dad. Um, Dad's terrible career wise. I mean, the dad's like, has had four failed careers. He's now on his fifth career Um, and was a heroin addict. He's a heroin addict in the first book. And he sort of weaned off the heroin as part of a part of the series and uh he you know i don't know he just arrived I, d- I don't really think of them as kind of characters
1: well what about nightingale then his boss um nightingales um not not a run of the mill superior policeman well you say that
2: but nightingale and we're supposed to call them senior officers by the way apparently oh wait you don't say, superior officers. Isn't what so my 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 policemen tell me, um, or policemen for that matter. supposed to call them police. He's a he's very unusual senior officer. He he's like a he's, he's a bit out of time. I don't really want. The, I don't know because I don't know how much to give away without giving away the the plot of the first book.
1: Okay, well, we, we don't need to, but yes, he is slightly out of time. He's an anachronism, shall yeah. we say, um, and he uh, does have some uh, insight. I, I particularly like the way you keep referring to Isaac Newton as the father of magic, and so that uh, you, we, we, you've repositioned him. But that's, that's a bit your shtick, isn't it? Sort of just laying that, uh, that level Well, that, that of actually came from,
2: well, from one of the Science of Discworld books, um. I can't remember if it was one or two, and in the Insights of Disworld books, they're talking about, because, you know, Newton actually spent as much time studying alchemy as he did anything else, and he was fascinated with theological questions. He was a heretic. Um, he wasn't an atheist. He was a heretic, and he would uh, he was trying to work out the age of the world by measuring the, the, the um, dimensions of the Temple of Jerusalem and things like that, very esoteric stuff, and uh, one of the Discworld science books once had a little footnote, and it was talking about this thing where, when, where Newton is, you know, fascinated by the occult and he's fascinated by alchemy, and um, and they, they, they're very dismissive of it. They they call it a philo pause, which is when a, someone, a scientist, suddenly decides that they can break every other one else's philosophical concepts. And, and Lastrik said, "But of course, if anyone was going to find magic, it was going to be Newton." So I thought fine <laughs> oh that's oh, that's my departure point is that newton
1: yeah newton codifies and, and he does people. he works as as the figure if if all of this was true and you you've you've sort of led and, uh, well, again one of the distinctive things about about the series is is how um rather than have it parallel with you know the sort of harry potter thing where there's a parallel world of wizards you've got it um, sort of woven through the uh, the 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 world as we find it, and and that that must have been a deliberate decision.
2: Well, most people don't know how the police work anyway. Most people don't know what policemen do all day because they watch a lot of TV, and TV is very bad actually at what police work is like. You know, except for something like Happy Valley, um, which is very good at kind of like the response officer level, but is you know, and. Um, And so I thought it's quite easy. You can have an organisation in the Metropolitan Police that deals with magic, and people just wouldn't know about it. In the same way, they don't know about most of the organisations that are inside the Metropolitan Police. And the senior officers know there's a division that does the weird bollocks, but they're not happy about it. And most people—that's entirely (laughs) plausible, isn't it?
1: Because they have all sorts of um, sort of little bits of uh, operational. Yeah, You you don't really want to know about it. Yeah, and they, know.
2: and they don't, because it complicates everything, because they can't, you know, it complicates the paperwork, if it's like weird magic. They'd rather, they'd just rather, so basically, and there wasn't a lot of it, you see, that's part of it. There hasn't been a lot of it for a while. So it, it wasn't, they didn't need a complex bureaucracy, and then now Peter's come along and there's more, magic crime about Peter's kind of devising forms that they can fill in and they're very happy with Peter because he's good at that kind of stuff (laughs) he's
1: got magic bureaucracy
2: (laughs) well he's because you know Peter was deliberately designed to be the antithesis sorry the antithesis of of uh, the the stereotype British copper, who is a middle-aged white guy who hates authority, ironically um, doesn't get on with his superiors, hates paperwork, yearns of the old days of the nineteen seventies, and his marriage is crashing into a boo- booze-fueled kind of like hell. Right, and I thought, well, no, I'm going to do a young mixed race guy gets on great with his, photo, loves paperwork,
1: and even occasionally. Um, gets laid. Which yes, is, and occasionally
2: gets laid yeah. and does not have, and does not have a... Isn't angst-ridden? Isn't angst-ridden. Yes, I, I wanted to avoid angst. he's I wanted to do so, because when I started writing this, we were right in the middle of the, the big Stieg Larsson craze, and we had a
0: wave
2: of Scandinavian detectives. Every single one of them more, sort of like psychologically dysfunctional than the next, until you got to the kind of Icelandic... This, detectives who barely function, who get out of the morning thinking of their dead sister who died in a climbing accident when they were 12 and, and can't get to the crime scene without at least a mental breakdown. I knew you'd that because <laughs>
1: in one of the books you've got a reference to uh, giving, giving somebody one of those uh, knitted sweaters that, that, uh, that Scandinavian detectives put on when they're having a nervous breakdown. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is a man who's red.
2: I deliberately made Peter Grant as different from that as possible. I basically did the Columbo thing. You know how Columbo came about? No, actually. Oh, no, tell me. Go on. Well, Columbo came about because they said, right, we want to do a TV series. We want to, we're going to take all the cliches currently then, which is the late 60s, of American detective stories, police stories, and we're going to turn them on their head. And at that time, like, policemen were portrayed as clean-shaven, suit-wearing, just-the-facts, ma'am, two-fisted, gun-welding, car-chasing, kind of like, you know, you know like policemen. And um, and instead we get this shambling, rambling... Guy. And a wonderful
1: actor. I mean, jealousy. yes,
2: yeah, I mean, they really lucked into the actor, but I mean, it was like, it was a beautiful piece of writing. And, you know, we assume, since he is an LAPD officer, that he has a pistol somewhere on his person, but you never see it. And, you know, he has a terrible car and he never fights anyone. There's no action sequences. And to top it all, the actual total reversal was you know who did it right at the beginning and it becomes how he finds out who did it rather than, you know, who done it. So I thought I'd take that principle and I'd apply it to the current run of, you know, alcohol-soaked jazz. You see, that's why I made his father a jazz musician. Because he knows all about it. He knows way more than, than Rebus about jazz. He could talk Rebus under the table, but he doesn't particularly like jazz. It's just that his father was a jazz musician, so he knows all about it.
1: Before we move on, I still want to um, do, do one or two more of the characters. Because I, in The Folly, which is this... this uh, I mean, it's located in a big house on Russell Square, which uh, has been there for, for this purpose for years and years and years. And there's a housekeeper... Molly, I love Molly. I adore Molly. And she's well, no, you tell me. What what? What is Molly? I can't tell you. I'd be giving it away. You haven't got to the bit yet. No, you can't tell me, can you? No. But but I like is, Molly. I like Molly. She's deeply too. intriguing and and sinister and marvelous. Yes,
2: I like I, I don't know. She just turned up when I wrote the scene where he walks in and there she was. I do that a lot. I find She characters. doesn't speak. <laughs> no, she doesn't speak. She's just kind of creepy,
1: and and she does. She frightens you to death, yeah. and she frightens uh, Peter as well.
2: She wakes Peter up by standing in the doorway until he wakes up through sheer fright.
1: <laughs> I want to touch on on your conception of magic because you have to make magic your own. You've got you've got some uh, some uh, terms uh, like vestigia, which actually we we should probably explain, um, unless that's is that a standard term. I'm just magic- no, or I made all, I made most okay, of magic so stuff up. Okay, w- so what's vestigia?
2: Vestigia is the after, the sort of afterglow that is left behind by magic, or rather, it's, it can be laid down by magic, and it's very hard because they don't have a working theory of how magic works. It is rather like Isaac Newton and his theory, his laws of motion. You see, Isaac Newton figured out that there was action at a distance. The big breakthrough Isaac Newton did was to work out that there was no physical connection between the sun and the planets, and that gravity worked with no physical connection, which was very against the kind of current Aristotelian view of the cosmos at that time, where everything had to be connected. And it's probably because of his interest in alchemy and magic that he actually could make that conceptual leap, because that's, that's magical thinking, that there's a magic. And now he basically thought it was God's love, that basically kept the plants together because he was a weirdo. Well, and also a spiritual man. Yeah, I'm not going to be that cruel about one of the great geniuses of you know of history, but he didn't. He didn't know what it was. We still don't really know. What we, you know, we. I mean, all right. Some people claim to know what it is. I don't know what it is, and they've explained it to me a lot of times, and I still don't know what curvature of space-time really means. I can say it's the curvature of the space-time. Imagine a rubber sheet and a, and a ball bearing, and I can do all <laughs> yeah. that, but I can't really tell you what the hell that actually means in practice. It
1: freaks uh, me <coughs> out too, although I'm, I'm working on it. So, so I have you know, a working theory by the and end And for of some you. reason,
2: time is mixed up with it. And, okay, I'll take your word for it. And, and But magic never got an Einstein. Oh, that's nice. So magic never got an Einstein, so we never got or a plank, so we never got... Quantum theory and we never got relativity, the equivalent in magic. So we're still at a Newtonian world where we know roughly, we know enough to put a man on the moon, which you can do with Newtonian mechanics, but we don't really know what it is. We can't build a transistor.
1: (laughs) So, in the furthest station, uh, what we do is we, we meet ghosts.
0: Normally when you feed a ghost, it appears all in one mass, taking on the illusion of solidity, as it noms up the magic. This one was like a glitch in a computer game. His torso bent over backwards at the waist, legs pumping spasmodically, arms outstretched, head held vertically on the end of an obscenely elongated neck. Despite the contortion, we could see that he was a young man dressed in a red 18th century riding jacket and knee breeches. His mouth moved and formed words but they were hard to catch, like when someone is trying to talk over loud music in a club.
1: So we, we meet ghosts on the Metropolitan Line and I was, I was wondering why the Metropolitan Line and then, of course, I thought, oh, the furthest station, it's, it, this, the clue is in the title.
2: Well, uh, actually, actually, I, I didn't choose it because of the furthest station. I found out about the furthest station once I started doing research about the Metropolitan Line. I chose the Metropolitan Line because of it. it's, it's tremendously important role in, in kind of expanding London out to the west. I mean, it is the reason we have that whole swathe of, of West London, what's known as Metroland. And, and, and once you get into it, it's very fascinating. And then I discovered that Chesham... Is in fact the furthest station on the underground at all. See, I
1: thought you'd done that deliberately because you you do have a, a habit in the books of taking Peter out of London. And I, I'm sure that's deliberate. It, it, it's a way, isn't it, of, of, of uh, creating London almost as a character in, in the books by removing him from it from time to time. Yeah, I
2: like to, you know, so you can look outside. Mm, you know. Which you do, you need and to. My, my favourite line I've ever written is It's a Sad Fact of Modern Life. If you drive far enough, you run out of London.
1: (laughs) We said it's a novella. Uh, Why is it a novella? Why, why, I mean, after five full-scale
2: novels? So, Oh, well, I'd never really thought of writing novellas. And I'm not that enamoured. I wasn't that enamoured of the the novella because it's very hard to sell. It's very hard to sell. People don't want to buy them. Although they are becoming much more popular now because they work very well with Kindles. So people pick them up, and it's a good kind of three, four-hour read. It's good for a flight across, you know, to into a commuter flight or a, you know a holiday flight. It's a good, it's a good kind of like fun read length. And um, Subterranean Press, which is a company that does specialist, uh, pr- uh, what, I don't know what you really describe them—specialist kind of limited edition copies—and they get all signed. I signed them, all two thousand of them. Um, said do you want to do a novella? And, you know, my instinct as a writer is to go, yes, whenever there's money. (laughs) I always say, you know, when you're a writer, the response to a question of, would you like to do some work is to go, yes, in a loud, clear voice.
1: quite a lot of writing for money. I mean, we're not going to talk about it a lot, but you you, you wrote for Doctor Who and... um, and Well, yes, and I had long
2: periods of unemployment, (laughs) hence the yes, in a loud, clear voice, whenever the word, you know, paid comes up. Although now I can afford to be more picky my instinct is always to go yes i think every writer's isn't is it you know you just because you remember that period where you couldn't get arrested let alone employed um so subterranean press asked me if i'd like to do a novella and i thought okay and i thought i thought myself that uh we would do a novella and then we would combine it with the other short stories and they would publish it as a novella plus short story collection if they published it at all, I had no guarantee that, that, that it would be published by my other publishers, except they, went, they fell on it with great glee and, and published it. So I thought, okay.
1: Well, that's the kind of way you want them to fall on. Well,
2: yes. You see, I didn't expect them to do that. So I was a bit surprised. So I'm now writing four more. And four more novellas? Yes. Are you really? No. Yeah, well, interspersed, because it's something I can do and write a novel. Mm-hmm. I can't write two novels in a year, but I can write a, a novella and a novel in a year. Well, it,
1: it, you also have um, uh, comic books and, and graphic novels in, in in this series. Now, I haven't been into Forbidden Planet for so long that I actually haven't seen any of them. I haven't read any of them. Are, are they the same stories turned into uh, no, comics? Or no. Are they, they're, do they're, they're
2: what, to, use a, to use a term that I stole from Doctor Who... But it's actually a literary term. They are interstitial.
1: Oh, very nice.
2: Interstitial. They they occur within the gaps in the in between the novels and uh, as does the novella.
1: Um, I, have I missed anything else? It's not been turned into a TV show, the time. Uh,
2: the it's been before. optioned for a TV show, but I don't know if it will ever be made. You don't know with TV. It's, it's, TV's run by strange people. Is it going to make know. you write differently, though? Is it,
1: I mean, are, are the books going to be constructed so no. that they'll turn into a TV no. show?
2: No, my books were deliberately disconstructed. The first one particularly was written yes. in mind that this is not a TV we series. We won't spoil
1: it, but there's a cataclysm at the end Yes, you could never... And, and,
2: yes, and, and well, now they will, and now they'll have <laughs> to if they want to make it, because I said I'm not selling this so it can be set in Bradford and you yeah. can do you know, like a small house fire. <laughs> no, no, I said, if you want to make this, you have to make it as is.
1: Um, ben Aronovich, thank you very much. Um, the furthest station uh, published by Orion Books is 12.99. Ben Aronovich, thank you very much.
0: Thank you very much. That was the Books Podcast with Tim Haig. The Books Podcast is produced by Green Shoot. You can find out more at www.green-shoot.com and Tim can be contacted on tim at green com.